How familiar are you with the hidden forces shaping our world? Learn about the spaces you occupy every day with Spaces Podcast, a journey through the design, construction, and the impact of our evolving environments. Hi, I'm Demetrius Lynch, host of Spaces, and I'm thrilled to take you on a ride through the intersections of environment, politics, culture, and economy. Join me and leading industry professionals as we uncover the stories behind the spaces that shape societies, past, present, and future. Today, there's a certain amount of cynicism and and kind of general malaise. Maybe many practices should come together and think about common goals, solving some of the major issues of the day. If I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say, now we are in peace with this. But (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now by following the link in the show notes, and let's unravel the secrets of our built world together. Spaces Podcasts. Go beyond the everyday, because spaces shape society. According to the AIA's 2020 firm survey report, 75.2% of architecture firms are small firms, nine or fewer employees. However, small firms only make up 18% of total staffing and 12.8% of total revenue. You've likely not heard of many, if any, of these firms. Most architecture firms don't get work by being well known. Their work comes through their network of personal contacts and active networking efforts. Therein lies another challenge of launching a business while navigating the demands of a day job. I'm Jeffrey Lee, and this is Emerging, a Gable Media podcast. I don't want to drag you guys into this. I I don't believe in pro bono work, but when it comes to family, I'll make that exception. But I don't want you guys to be bound to that in any way. I saw this on LinkedIn the other day and this guy was like, oh, your first thing you have to worry about is your brand. That is such horse I'm sorry, but that is just, it's, it's wrong. The first thing you have to figure out is how you're generating revenue. This is the podcast where you'll hear what it's really like to start a new architecture firm. In our previous episode, we explored the building blocks of a financially healthy company. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes to hear the full unfiltered story behind our journey to start an architecture firm. In today's episode, we'll discuss the revenue side, how to get work. If you choose to follow a similar path to ours, you have to understand that starting a business while employed is an uphill battle, one that entails a lot of compromises. Starting a business while employed is very challenging. Um, a lot of nights, weekends, the already little time we have to ourselves, we have to dedicate another portion of that to business. But it's definitely something we've all committed to do. We were serious about starting this thing since we've been kind of dancing around it for a while. So, yeah, we decided to do it. And it's definitely kicking our asses. Sometimes it's a little easier. It's ebbs and flows for sure. There's a lot of challenges that come with it, obviously. Being able to dedicate as much time to it as we want to can be challenging. Yeah, I think it also like ties to your personal schedule a lot. Like Whether you're a morning person or an evening person, that's the time that becomes dedicated to your side hustle, so they say. So finding that dedicated time, for me, it's, it's super early in the morning when I have fresh energy. But then also, you know, it bleeds into Saturday and Sunday is the day that we were all available to meet. So that's both of our week weekends, at least doing a little bit of lead up work and then Sunday getting together as a group. So it quickly, you can realize, oh my God, it's been six months and I haven't had a day off from work or a full day where I haven't touched work. And it's, it's, you don't really necessarily realize once you're in the flow of it, but it definitely can have the tendency to lead to complete exhaustion and burnout and and it's it's rightfully so when you step back and realize you know it's been six six months or so without a day off we're really making this sound fun <laughs> lexi i mean i know <laughs> tennis is is big for you 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 actually are yeah athletic whereas jeff and i you know, <laughs> hey, hey just you guys go out and <laughs> i walk 
Yeah, it's it's well, it's hard to balance it with your personal life. I mean, tennis is important to me, and also, I don't know if I want to say this, but I'm the only one that is single, so I'm still trying to date people <laughs> and hey, trying trying to it. do that. Well, just <laughs> you know, it's having personal time on like a Saturday evening when, especially when we were mid some of the the competition we most recently did. It's like it's really challenging because it's, I know that I have to wake up Sunday morning by 8am or whatever, and it makes it difficult to do some of those other things. And so we definitely have tried to figure out, okay, maybe we have a more extensive period of a few months where we're really pushing. And then we sort of take a little, not, we're not pausing fully, but we sort of take a little bit of a break so that we kind of can reset because Mm -hmm. having more energy and more dedicated time to be consistent in the long term is going to, I think, is going to be beneficial for us. And it also helps us when we're actually doing work together that we have the energy to do so. So if we just did the whole year every day, we're going to, like, we won't make it. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's a constant conversation we're having of like, when is, you know, now we've pushed for a bit, let's take a pause. How are you feeling? How are we feeling? What's coming up in our lives? So it's a constant discussion of calendars, schedules, etc. Especially with three people. I, I imagine it's probably easier if you're a solo practitioner that, you know, you fit it into your own schedule, but we're trying to coordinate three schedules. So. And three professional work schedules as well, yeah. which everybody knows you, you schedule a vacation for work to try to avoid a deadline and of course the deadline moves to the vacation slot but i think that that's you know that's a benefit of having three people yeah when one of us is on a professional deadline sometimes they they coincide with competitions that we're doing and that person just kind of front loads a little bit more and then has to kind of hand off to the other two to carry through while they're on a deadline so that's definitely a benefit of having three of us while maintaining full-time jobs At this point of our journey, we continued our participation in competitions to build out our portfolio as opposed to finding commissioned work. Competitions are really typical in architecture. There's also an interesting storied past with that in terms of doing free work ahead of our profession is coming up with aesthetic like designs. And to do that work for free as part of a competition is a little you know, I have my feelings about that, mixed feelings, but we started off as a competition and they are a good way for people that are totally unknown, that don't have a bankroll, that don't have a certain client like in mind. It's approachable as people that aren't like, you know, we don't have any friends or et cetera that are like built in, oh, I'm starting this business, build us a brick and mortar shop or you know, so a competition is relatively easily approached. And so we started that way. And I think it just kind of roll, has rolled into like thinking about it that way. And we're also trying to reframe now how maybe we pull back from that because it is a lot of time and energy and that is maybe not always paid off in the same manner in the long term. I think there's there's a few other things specific to us as well. Like I remember when we first put our website together, we just basically had a bunch of little exhibition installation type work. And we, you know, we want to start an architecture office and professionally in our, in our nine to fives, we've worked on some massive projects like nine to seven scale. Yeah. Nine to 10, nine to 12. Uh, Yeah. But we've worked on some incredibly complex and large scale projects, but because of how the industry is set up, we're not allowed to share any of that due to either NDAs or copyright. Uh, we can't advertise any of the the work that we've actually been a part of as part of our website. So I, I remember when we set up our website, we took a step back and it's like, there's not a building on here. <laughs> it, it was very conscious that we were like, well, I think we need to kind of spend a year doing selective competitions. And, and a lot of the competitions we look for, we always look for ones that that have a potential, or we try to, that have a potential to result in a built either installation or some type of built piece. So a lot of times we'll go after smaller kind of fabrication-based competitions. We look for competitions that 
don't have a cost of entry that are sponsored by some other you know organizations so that we don't have to pay to participate which is another ethical dilemma and i think the other benefit of competitions is that it it gave us the opportunity to test out workflows and streamline what is working and what's not working and it also gave us the opportunity to be more experimental which is something we're interested in and research based so we're able to kind of test things that are ideas that we have without the implication of you know being too crazy for a client that said would much rather be working with a client while the income would have been nice actively seeking commissioned work initially wasn't a priority yeah we were concerned about the time you know if what if we went up to something and then had to immediately dedicate so I, I don't know. I don't think we really did look for any commission work at the beginning, right? But we were having conversations. Like I know a friend reached out to me about a house. I know through doing the Warm Wishes competition, we were connected with Emily Blumfeld at Via Partnership, who then approached us with the opportunity to go in on an RFP. I, I think it was like you know we were having the conversations. You know, it's a it's always a struggle to find a client, but I think we also didn't really know. The process to to find RFPs or anything of that nature. I mean, we also wanted to do like what Chris is saying when we were building out a website. Like we wanted to be able to show a house, and so we because we thought, oh, that's something that is you know a good entry point for a lot of small offices, standalone residential. But we didn't have anything on the website that would maybe show what we could do or design for somebody that might want that. So. We found a modular home competition and went after that as like a point of reference. So then, you know, if people want to talk to us about that, we have a little something to show that's like, well, we can do this. Like, I, I think so some of those decisions are made off of that. And then to, to his other point, like they're also great networking opportunities we found out because if we partner with some of these other people that are, you know, maybe we partnered with an artist. Nancy Novacek. Nancy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a great person to maybe reach out to in the future. So those are, they're good networking and they're also good marketing options because we really didn't have any information out there about ourselves, but we have a few little publication type things now that just show that we're active, that we're serious, that we're, you know, professional (laughs) people that are, you know, passionate about this. We like doing this, you know, this, we're doing this uh, on, in our free time. So I think those are good things to like put out in the world and a competition is a sort of easy entry point to do so. Nancy Novacek was an artist that we collaborated with on a competition called Warming Huts. Warming Huts is a, is a competition that happens every year in Winnipeg, I think, Manitoba, on a river when the river freezes over, they have different artists and architects propose installations for quote unquote warming huts where people can step inside while they're skating along the river and and warm up. Some of them are more warming than others. Some are just totally open air, but it's it's a beautiful kind of art exhibition space in the winter. And so we had seen this competition happening for years. Like I said previously, we always try to go after competitions that would result in a built a financed built work that we're not paying out of uh, out of pocket. So that's why it was appealing to us. The brief also mentioned that they really encourage collaboration with different disciplines. So right off the bat, we started dipping into our alumni network and came across Emily Blumfeld, who, who's a partner at Via Partnership. They do kind of public art installation and curating. And just through connecting with her, she was able to kind of hear about the prompt and, and help us find a perfect artist. And that was Nancy Novacek. And she was local. So this competition gave us an opportunity to test collaborating with third parties. Again, in our nine to five job, we all have to handle coordination with different trades. But as a collective, as the three of us, we haven't really tried working with other people. So it was a good opportunity to do that. Working adjacent to architecture, I don't know if she told you, I worked for Metropolis Magazine for many years. I've always had a love of architecture. I worked for Bruce Mao for a number of years. So 
Awesome. I had I had some nice dinners with Rem and Frank and all, wow. all his pals. <laughs> and and just my just my interest by their very nature, like always lead me towards architecture. So I love I love working with and collaborating with with architects. Great. So I looked at the competition site. It looks and did she also tell you that I um, am proud of my honorary Canadian status. I lived in Canada for about three years. So she mentioned that. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. So I, this competition looks really sweet. Like it looks like a really nice scale. I guess the past two years of entries online, like you can see it's a real like interesting mixed bag. I thought there were some like really beautiful, right. really smart stuff. And then like some stuff that might be quantified as like super fun and like family friendly. <laughs> but I think it's right. like, I really like the scale and the timeline also seems pretty reasonable. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty interested. And I think it's, I think it's great that you guys haven't done any brainstorming. Yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Emily was asking what, what some of the ideas were. And I like threw a couple out, but I'm like, but don't hold us to any of that. I haven't even talked to the team. I don't, I, I want to start okay. fresh. So what, what's your experience been kind of working collaboratively with architects and, and what's the process usually like for that? You know, it's, it kind of depends on the DNA of who I'm working with. If it's a group, if it's an individual, Adam Hayes is an old friend of mine. So I've put in on a couple of competitions with them before. We really started, I guess, at a place of like, you know, all of the project constraints, like we all kind of went away and pulled together all of our kind of personal references and brought them back together. I worked with an architecture firm in Caracas on this really big commission from the American embassy. And they only had internet for about 15 minutes at a time. That's better than me. That's amazing. (laughs) Before it cut out. And so I think we worked together. I want to say we worked together for about seven months and we just started by kind of trading references and kind of just seeing like where our kind of interest overlaps were and like what we got excited about in other people's ideas. And we kind of went from there and it's, I believe in being really open with my collaborators and just really like letting the process come rather organically. And I guess I've been pretty lucky so far that that's, it's been that we've been, that I've been really successful in kind of creating those, but it's, for me, the thing I love about working with architects is that your points of reference are inevitably really different than mine. Like because you're you're looking at the world structurally, you're looking through a whole different materials palette, you're looking through, you know, a different set of references, you know, both current and historical. And so I think I really find that it's a really um, complementary kind of relationship. I don't know if have you guys worked with artists before. I don't think that as a group, the three of us that ever collaborated with an artist on any sort of competition project we've done like this. But I mean, everything you're saying, pointing out the, the kind of innate differences of how we approach it, I think is the idea behind trying to collaborate with someone like yourself. I'm sure the intent of kind of the, the competition pushing forward too. But yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. Well, and we to, like what you're saying, Nancy, we tend to do the same thing within ourselves when the three of us collaborate which is pull a bunch of resources, bounce them off each other. And then usually our lens that we kind of key into architecturally has been some kind of materiality focus. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of end up leaning toward that. But yeah, I mean, we we bounce off a ton of ideas (laughs) initially and see kind of what grabs people and then go from there is how I would say we've done done work together in the past for the three of us but no we haven't worked specifically with an artist before which is exciting cool. I, think. I mean i'm i may not be like the mo- the most kind of like classic archetype of an artist because <laughs> i do have my initial background is in design so i think that's actually what makes these kinds of collaborations i think really successful is because i know where you're coming from although i don't have the same skill set but I also I have a, a similar mindset, but just like a different way of I guess employing it. So I'm not I'm not a very airy person. If you're like if you're looking for someone who's like I don't know I'm just thinking about cereal. Just no, like, I, I, I don't think know. How do you guys feel about thing. Cheerios? <laughs> I don't think so. The art proposal we were I mean I think we covered it 
several times now how much we focus on materiality. So immediately right off the bat, you know, we're re researching local materials, looking at environmental impacts. So we're looking at materiality and constructability and partnering with Nancy. She was very focused on the experiential part of this thing. So she was a great collaborator. And that was one of our first times doing that. So that was a lot of fun to do with her. Very passionate. She also had a great graphical eye. She did a lot of red marking of our drawings, which is great. Now she's, she's, she's done these competitions before. So, but what we ended up with, I guess I'll just jump to the point is we had these thatched kind of bulbous huts. So the idea was that the, they would be kind of thatched on this very stick built frame. And then on the inside, there were these ribbons with a pen and paper. And the idea was that it was this moment of reflection where you would go in, meditate, take a moment to yourself, and then you would take a note, piece of paper, write down your aspirations for that year, and then you would go outside and kind of burn it. And that was this, and that was all, you know, Nancy's process of kind of... Like a ritual. Yeah, it was it was coming out of COVID too. So people had a really rough year and it was like the first year that people could kind of, it was okay to be outside again. And Nancy really pushed us to kind of reflect on that. So that's how we brought like a lot of ceremony into it. And the ribbons had on the inside had paper tied to them and, and each visitor could pull it off, write their thoughts on the previous year and year ahead. And then they would keep the ribbon as a keepsake when they go home. And then as they were leaving the hut, there was a fire which people could gather around to warm up. And you'd kind of throw your, your wish for the year into that fire and it would go up with the smoke. And and then we found out that like eight other proposals did little thatched huts. huts. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, you know, I think the experience part was probably unique, but the yeah. overall kind of massing aesthetic was actually not that unique. <laughs> and so unfortunately we didn't place in that or anything, but it was a really great learning experience to work with someone else for sure. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think we had, you know, our other work, you don't engage with it so intimately. So to have that element, um, have the architecture to try to speak to that was a lot of fun. Later that year, we had an opportunity to add real work to our portfolio, which we refer to as Lily Lane. It was my sister and brother-in-law who have a growing family and live in a garrison colonial house outside Boston. and they had always kind of envisioned kind of renovating and adding an addition to that. And my brother-in-law, fortunately, is a, a builder by trade. So it was great to have the opportunity to work with somebody who's knowledgeable about the industry, probably more knowledgeable than us when it comes to kind of actually building things. And I think it, you know, it's family, so it gets a little tricky when it comes to billing and, and things of that nature. And it, it wasn't something I was personally I don't I don't want to bill my family for work that's that's something that I wanted to offer they've supported me in so many ways so being able to offer that in return to them was something I was happy to do but I also remember having a conversation with Jeff and Lexi about that and just saying I, I don't want to drag you guys into this I, I don't believe in pro bono work in, in kind of the bigger sense of doing work for corporations or others for free I, but when it comes to family, I, I'll make that exception, but I don't want you guys to be bound to that in any way. They approached me about this a while ago. Originally, like Maria and I were going to work on it just because when we were approached, we were all together. Since then, Maria's kind of like not shown too much interest in it. And I've just been like trying to get things on track because they asked me like months ago. So I just drafted up existing conditions this week and like highlighted, they, they gave me some measurements, but I highlighted areas that, you know, were not consistent or that I needed more info on. But I was kind of hesitant to bring it back to this group because I, I, it's not something I feel like I can charge them for. And so I didn't want to put you guys in a position of doing free labor. And I was just kind of taking it on myself. At the same time, it, it's an opportunity for us to learn and, and go through this process as a group on a project, you know, a little more substantial potentially. So do you have initial thoughts regarding that? I don't know the scope of the work, obviously, and what you're what they're looking for, but I wouldn't be opposed to doing it. 
it's an addition. It's like two story addition. So it is like potentially substantial. According, my brother in law is a builder, so he would be. Yeah, that's what I was remembering. He's yeah. he's the contractor on it. Right, he'd be handling that and yeah. like filing and all that kind of stuff. So he kind of knows the in and outs, which would lessen our burden. And also, he seems like they don't really need much to get permitted because it's like a small town in Massachusetts. But at the same time, you know, it's going to require drawing some stuff up, and so we we can continue to talk about it. Yeah, that working with your brother-in-law, who's already you know taking handling that, that makes it actually way easier. The certifying and all that stuff, and you know, we won't have to self-certify anything. So that'd be that'd be good. We'll probably make it a lot easier too right yeah and like you know at the end of the day he's going to be picking the products with vendors and stuff like that so it's not like we have to sink a bunch of time like finding out what the client wants and stuff like that so it's right. something we can continue to discuss I'll, I'll put it in writing and send it out to lexi and uh we can continue to talk about it the project scope for lily lane was expansive yeah, in this in this case would be close would be removing the existing staircase down to the cellar. You get some pantry into the kitchen as well and storage under the stairs from the mudroom. Yeah. So I think so it's it's funny because I I mean I'll, you want to take the lead first or you want to No, I mean I I'll just say I mean I personally like the idea and I'm curious about exploring the idea of moving the basement staircase. This design still doesn't solve totally the weird shape of the living room the existing living room the existing living room yeah but what i love i love the idea of like the front porch here and i love the idea of having like the office and the mud room back to back with closet space and like bright window you know windows and lots of light coming in that way so one thing i don't know if we even mentioned this but one thing we were thinking about is moving the fridge on the other side of the but then we lose that peninsula you don't want the peninsula anymore what peninsula in in option two we're showing uh we, we had talked about i mean i don't really oh, care one some, way yeah, yeah yeah we, yeah i mean i know so i, I mean like there's components i feel like i like about all of the design <laughs> well well let's that's that's fine let's talk through that and i can oh. better understand and then try to find ways to preserve those yeah Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success. It was an addition and a renovation. So it basically doubled the square footage of, of the house. They already had a finished basement, so we didn't have to touch that, but we added an unfinished basement for storage and tools. Upstairs, we added kind of a new entry point, new front porch, open living room. We found a really creative way to deal with a very tricky and steep staircase that had very low head clearance on the at the basement level below. Our proposal uses a steel plate, which allows you to keep a really thin profile and also open up the floor in between rooms at the stair. 
So that was really great in achieving kind of an open flow that the family wanted. Added an all new living room, back terrace, back deck, redid the kitchen. The back terrace was interesting too, because there was like a level change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of grading change, surprisingly. And also there was a staircase exactly where we wouldn't want it going down to the basement. And we were able to kind of figure out how to get that off to the side of the house without interfering with a setback. But also the scope was kind of like concept schematic level, you know, with some detailing ideas for how to get these things achieved. But it wasn't like a full on like we are totally legally liable, liability wise, like involved in in the documentation set. So it is a good like entry point to to learning how to do that kind of process, but then also like not needing to have all the infrastructure on our end in place to like carry it fully through. Yeah. The the lumber yard did the framing plans for us. So I mean there, there it was the due diligence was done, but it it gave us the benefit of not having to stamp anything, which was good. We didn't have to take on that liability. Working through this project exposed a lot that we needed to develop as a business. It was another one where we definitely realized we need to improve our workflow when we're doing these projects because we didn't have a lot of the Rhino templates set up. So I was kind of hacking things together, working on it off and on, and ended it up taking a lot of time. And we just didn't really have the systems in place where we could collaborate on a project like that. Revit is a software that we all use in our offices. It's just incredibly cost prohibitive for a startup firm. So we're working with just Rhino, which is great for doing, you know, 3D visualizations, renderings, as well as you're able to get kind of a drafting set out of it, but it but it's really not set up for that. And then in terms of having multiple people work on the file at the same time, it's a little tricky. So it's definitely pointed out that that's something we need to develop and work on workflow when it comes to doing documentation sets. The other thing that was really interesting on it is we're so used to working on just these massive projects that you know we put together 500 page drawing sets and with with all sorts of different sub consultants and doing a small house i think we kind of approached it like we need every little corner detailed we need you know everything figured out so that was kind of our mentality going into it and then a few months later i was visiting my brother-in-law who's also a builder down in in charlotte north carolina and he's showing he he builds custom homes and he's showing me this 20,000 square foot home mansion, just insane. And I looked at the architectural set and it was nine pages. So (laughs) I I spent months putting together a set that was maybe like, I don't know, 30 pages. It just totally over-documented. They're going to figure things out in the field anyway. But at the same time, it's, it's our craft, it's our trade. We wanted to make sure that the details were, were there. And we put together a nice set, a pretty, Decent design. Well, it's a good point to make, though. I think like we're so used to these huge sets, and also there's so many players involved in the projects we do in our nine to five jobs. Like it needs that much documentation because there's going to be huge crews, and you know all the coordination. A lot of that needs to happen ahead of time so that when all those people are there, their time is efficient, and you know it's being handed off to a GC or whatever. And you know, even though it's a similar process in terms of like maybe the progression, like a lot of that coordination on a house can be done like as it's happening because it's like a much smaller crew and they talk to each other and they just, a lot of that stuff can be figured out in the field. You know, it's not such a large scale that people need to be off already knowing what they're going to do when they show up to a site. So it's a good point to make. Like it was a good learning moment to be like, Oh, a, a drawing package for a house, a permit package is like, I don't know, six drawings. And then maybe a few pages get added on like as it goes for specific questions from the city maybe or something like, but it's like nothing compared to the amount that maybe, you know, the institutional type work that we all do takes. So I think it was a really good learning thing to be exposed to what that world is like and then now we know what to expect, you know, when and that happens. You think you do these huge projects, no problem to do a house, but it's really just every single project is unique and has their own challenges. And and doing a house is 
not necessarily easier than some of the projects we've worked on. It depends on the house, I guess, but it's just a totally different animal in process. So we really had to learn what that process was. And you think that kind of residential is a great entry point, single family residential for a small and growing firm. But unless you've been working at a firm that does that, you're you're really kind of learning a different process. So it was a great opportunity to do that. To my and Lexi's knowledge, this work was pro bono. But in recording this episode, we found out that we were given a surprising compensation. We got a bottle of gin, but... We did? We did? I didn't share it. Hold on a second. <laughs> oh my God. That is uh, just shocking. It's the first I hear me of it. I don't, I don't think it made it back from Boston. I'm sorry. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that said, yeah. I, I would never do it if it weren't family. It, the pro bono. Oh, it's yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. an exception for, for family only. I think I think pro bono work is very troubling for the industry. So I, I would not have... If some other builder came to us looking for free work, there's no way. Lily Lane was a valuable experience for our business. But when it comes to acquiring projects that add to our bottom line, we needed additional guidance. We spoke with Brian McCartney, CEO and co-founder of ArcMark, a branding and marketing firm dedicated to helping architects find, attract, and win better clients and projects. Brian started with some feedback on our website, specifically from the perspective of finding work. I'm pulling it up and I'm seeing, you know, a bunch of projects, right? And so it's not really clear to me, number one, that you guys do architecture right off the bat, right? So the logo's fine and, and things like that, but I would, right under that logo, I would, is this a Squarespace or is it something like that? So I think in Squarespace, you can probably put in a little, just a little text blurb under that, say, you know, an architecture collaborative or something like that, you know, just something to help people understand like, hey, this is about architecture, right? I mean, I can look at the images and I can kind of guess that, but your work is very creative. It's not what I would expect to see on a normal architect's website. So it, it, it kind of crosses a boundary of like, you know, between like, it looks like project work, but it also looks like, could look like artwork or whatever. And you, you've got some other stuff in there too. So I would just make it clear that like, hey, we're an architecture team, right? Number one. Second, personally for me, I'd rather see on the homepage, when I go to the homepage, rather than just a, a grid of projects that don't really have any context, I'd rather see kind of like a, hey, welcome to the site kind of page where we maybe say a little bit about what our aims are or who we're trying to talk to. So make it clear like who your client is and you know who you, who you want your client to be, at least in this case. And, you know, what you think you can do for them, what what kind of unique skills or, or capabilities you might be able to, to bring to a project for a client. I don't know if you're familiar with Donald Miller. He's an author. He wrote this book called Story Brand. And he, he recommends that there's like three questions your homepage should answer, right? Number one, it's what you do. Number two, it's who you do it for and why they should give a shit. And then number three, it's what do they need to do next to get the ball rolling, right? So it's like a call to action, like, hey, you want to talk to us? Sure. Schedule a meeting, whatever it might be. Now, in your case, you know, because you're still working for other firms and things like that, you might just want to have a really, you know, like a form or, or something like that where you can collect some information. But just having a page that will kind of help people understand like, hey, we are architects these are the kind of projects we like to do, or this is what we're looking for. These are the kind of clients we like to work with. And then if you want to talk to us, here's how you do that. You know, click this button, right? That just in itself is just a very simple way to kind of have a little bit more clarity on the website. I actually like the projects. It looks cool and you do some really creative stuff, you know? So I would keep this page. I would just, you know, I would just make like a, an official like homepage, right? And what else you put on there that can vary. When we do a website for a client, we typically kind of, we'll have a scrolling page that it'll give you kind of an idea of what you can expect to find in other areas, you know, little teasers of what else is on the site. Like you've got, you've got research, there's objects, there's about us, there's, you know, working with us, news, all that. 
Like you could have a little, little snippets just to say like, oh, you're looking for this kind of stuff. It's over here, right? You know, it's the mall directory map basically of your website, right? One thing I recommend, and this is just me as a marketer, putting your social icons in the top right is just an invitation to get people to go, oh yeah, I'm bored. I'm going to go to Instagram and never come back to your website. So I put those always somewhere else. Like I usually put them in the footer. So yeah, you can follow us on Instagram. We love that. But I always want people to come back to my website because that's the best place to capture an email. That's where I would go next. Like once you get the simple stuff figured out, then you can get fancy and maybe have a maybe have a download or of some sort, you know, like there's all kinds of things like checklists and ebook guides and things like that. That's later, but I would say that the social icons when you put them right there at the top, it's just, it's tempting. And a lot of people just go, oh yeah, I'm out of here. Right. And the other thing I'm missing at the top, it says work with us. For me, I think most people are more accustomed to seeing like contact us and they associate that with a page where you would have maybe a contact form and then also like your business address or your location. So work with us is, to me, that's more like a more specific type of form. So you might want both. You know, there might be one that's a more more detailed work with us form where you could actually have like a project inquiry form where that you gather more information and then maybe like a contact us form where people can see where you are. It's very important, though, to make sure that people can see where you are. I have seen so many websites where I, you know, architecture firm websites where I go I can't find an address. I have no idea where these people are located, right? Yeah, it's it's annoying. While we currently lack the built work as a firm to appropriately display our expertise, Brian shared his insights on ways to generate content, driving traffic to our site and ranking in search results. You know, you have to use what you have and you have to use it intelligently. So if you guys are taking on projects, like if you're doing a family project, if you're doing a competition or whatever document everything keep everything sketches napkins whatever you're you know whatever it is you're doing use that use it as you know it can be window dressing for all i care but use it do something with it creatively it just shows a presence and a mindfulness about your work a level of detail that most people aren't showing because what most people show is, oh, here's my finished project, right? They don't show all the messy crap that goes along with it. But I'll be honest, when we build sites, the portfolios aren't the first thing that people look at. We have a, a client, we did a diary of, their, uh, of a big project they were doing. That page got more traffic than any other page on their website for the entire year that they were doing that project because everybody was coming back like, oh, what, what happened? Every two weeks, we posted new photos of that project. And they were like, wow, this is so cool. We're going to get to see this. You know, They wanted to see that development. People love that. That's, they want to see the process. They want to see how the, how the sauce is made. So don't under underestimate the power of showing the process of creation. People love it. He also discussed SEO, even introducing his clients to the power of AI-driven content creation, a game-changing tool for busy professionals. I have a coaching group that I, I work with. And these are all like, they're busy architects. They don't have time to write, you know, but they don't want to pay me to do it. So I said, okay, great. I'll coach you. And you guys can figure it out, but I'm I'm helping them figure out how to use ChatGPT to help them write articles. Now, it's not writing the articles, but it is helping them write the article. So the thing here is that there are tools out there that can help you minimize the time and effort that you put into things. You still have to go through the process. It still takes time. I'm not going to lie, you know. But I wouldn't aim for quantity necessarily with articles. I would aim for quality. So what you want to do is you want, you know, once you find a topic that you want to talk about, you want to look in Google and you want to say, well, who else is talking about that? Right. You want to look at their articles. Like, how long are they? What kind of keywords are they using in their headers and so forth? 
and there are tools actually that can help you do this. Even ChatGPT can help you do this. You can just like analyze these articles. Uh, use the WebPilot plugin if you have the paid version, and it'll it'll actually go through and it'll it can analyze those and kind of break down what are the key things and why is it, why are these articles ranking. So once you know that information, then you can kind of like reverse engineer and say, well, okay, if we created an article that kind of did this, we could probably outrank those articles. There is a way of of kind of out engineering other articles, so to speak, gamifying it, so to speak. You know, it's a different approach and I think it's becoming more popular, but most of the architects I talk to have no idea about this and maybe they will now, but nobody's really using this to any fully extent. We also asked Brian about the dilemma of how to share our expertise in design work without violating past employer NDAs. I think that you're going to have to be creative about that a little bit. So, you know, if you want to talk about a specific project, then yes, I think it's it, it kind of creates a little bit of a disconnect. Now, if you want to generalize it a little bit and talk about it more conceptually from a, a more general approach to without mentioning the specifics of the project, maybe, then that might give you some leeway to bring in some other visual elements or things like that, that might be able to help you illustrate some of what you're talking about. I just did an article for Enscape, right? The whole thing was about, well, should architects use renderings? Well, yeah, yeah, you should, because if you don't have finished photos, <laughs> what else do you have, right? And the other part of that too is that sometimes with renderings, you can create views and scenarios that show things that you can't do with photography, right? You can't show like what the place is going to look like in winter, summer, spring, and fall, unless you're sending a photographer out there four times a year, which nobody's doing that. You know, you can get creative with it. Now, Obviously, you can't do that with your building models or whatever that your your work projects, but maybe you can create a, a different scenario or a, a, an avatar type of project that allows you to kind of speak about what you want to speak about, but not going into the details of what what you specifically did. That's what occurs to me because, like, I I had the same problem as a graphic designer. You know, when I was younger, I was doing graphic design, and a lot of my clients were like. No, you're not putting that in your portfolio. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I just did this big project and, you know, I can't show it in my book. You know, what the hell? Basically, what I would do is I would just redesign the project with a fake client and show the work in my book. And people would be like, what's this? And I'd be like, and be like, well, I can't tell you who that was for. And it'd be like, you redesigned this project? And I'd be like, yep. They were like, that's cool. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, they loved it. They thought it was really cool. We were curious if Brian felt our brand was effective and Brian quickly urged us not to dwell on it excessively at this stage. Where you guys are right now, your brand is not that critical, right? You have a logo, you got a website, don't focus on that right now <laughs> you got a lot of time to figure out who you want to be and and how to nitpick that stuff that is not where i would put your energy all your energy right now goes into finding that client that gets you out of where you are now you know don't worry about that stuff it's counterproductive and it'll actually slow you down and it can derail you. I don't know. You guys seem like you all probably get along really well, but I have had fights with people over logos and messaging, like let it be what it is until you see like, you know, like, oh, wait a minute, that's just not fitting anymore. That's when you take the, the sledgehammer and start really figuring out what you need to do. But right now, where you are right now, you, that's not what you need to nitpick. What you need to figure out is like, how are we getting that client? What are we doing for that? And that's building network, getting out there, meeting people, talking to people, telling them what you're doing. Maybe it's more contests or uh, competitions, right? Maybe it's getting some articles published, right? But you have to focus on that first. Money first. 
I saw this on LinkedIn the other day and this guy was like, oh, your first thing you have to worry about is your brand. That is such horse. I'm sorry, but that is just it's it's wrong. The first thing you have to figure out is how you're generating revenue, because nothing matters if you can't generate revenue. That is just the sad truth of it. So start with revenue, then worry about like how you keep clients happy and how you deliver. Then worry about like not after the project, but during that project, worry about like where's the next project coming from, right? Don't let that slip because that's that you know you have to have to think about it. And, and, and there's three of you, so you can kind of you can you can do a balancing act and help each other with that, right? But don't don't sweat that stuff right now. Brian stressed the art of networking as a primary focus. I think one of the things that I would be thinking about is how you can collectively use the contacts that you already have. I wouldn't necessarily focus on the people that you're interfacing as a result of work, right? But maybe maybe think about some of your other former classmates, other colleagues that maybe you've worked with in the past. I don't know if you guys are involved in your local AIA chapters, but people there there's also other organizations you can get involved in. Like it, it gets more in the builder side, but NAHB, National uh, Association of Home Builders, there's a BIA, Builders Institute of America, or something like that. There's other networking opportunities that would certainly fall outside the bounds of what you're doing in your day jobs that they might be able to present opportunities to you that could help you start moving towards getting some work. But obviously, you got to navigate that. You got to understand, like, what are my boundaries and where am I stepping on the line, right? The best thing that I think you can do, even as a digital marketer, I'm always going to say, build your network. Face-to-face, meeting people, building relationships, that's always going to be the number one thing for any type of professional business, you know? One of the tools that he suggested harnessing is LinkedIn. I see a lot of architects focusing on Instagram and social media. That's fine and all. And I think a lot of our other architects are probably going to see that. But I don't know that your future clients are necessarily going to see that. Where I think you should probably be spending the effort on social media is building your network. And the best place to do that as a professional is on LinkedIn. You know, that's a perfect place to talk about the kind of stuff that you want to talk about, right? You know, share your knowledge, your experiments, your ideas. It'll still get out to other architects, but it'll also be seen if you grow your network beyond just architecture, if you start reaching out to builders and, you know, building materials suppliers and anybody else in the industry that you want to connect with, software makers, whatever. Start connecting with those kind of people and you're sharing this stuff that's a great way to kind of expand your network as well. Don't just think in terms of face-to-face. And also when you are networking face-to-face, use LinkedIn to connect with people and continue that conversation online. That's a perfect marriage because if you are sharing content on LinkedIn and you're networking in person and you're connecting with those people, when they connect with you, they're going to be seeing that content and they're going to be like, wow, this person's really interesting. That's really cool what they're doing. Right. So it's a nice way to kind of shortcut things. Brian offered invaluable guidance for our next steps to landing our first project as a firm. This multi-pronged content marketing and networking approach could propel us forward. Before we wrap up, I wanted to give a special thank you to Brian McCartney, CEO and co-founder of ArcMark. If you found Brian's insights helpful, he has a number of free resources that we've linked to in our show notes. You can also sign up for his waitlist for his new Firm Forward Mastermind Mentoring Program, helping architecture firm owners make the most of their firms through strategic planning, goal setting, accountability, and training. Click the link in our show notes or visit arcmark.co slash firm forward to get on the list. As we continue to work towards acquiring our first paying project, our experience thus far has illuminated a roadmap for us going forward and takeaways to share with you on your journey I mean, we have learned that we need to do a lot of networking. And so that's something that we've been working on this year. We focused a lot 
like heavy, heavy on competitions because that's sort of what we knew. And so now we're trying to shift gears and do some networking and tackle different industries and point people and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's ever evolving. And I think our approach has been, well, we just try something, we go for it, and then we try something else and see kind of what sticks. (laughs) So I don't know if that's the best approach, but that's what we've been doing. Yeah, I mean, coming off of those longer competitions, I don't know if this is the right advice or if anyone should listen to me, but, you know, like we, we learned that with the competition, you know, it's a risk and you don't want to invest too much time, right? I mean, we had obviously the business going on and had uh, plenty to do on that end, but we learned that the comp- if we're going to keep doing competitions, we have to learn how to kind of make decisions very quickly and move very quickly. And I think, I don't know, just be more thoughtful if you're going to do these competitions about, you know, how much time you end up investing in it versus how much time you in, you want to put into actually getting a client or something that pays. <laughs> well, not get hung up, right? I think what you're saying is like, we used to get really hung up on like yeah. design, design, designing. And like that thing is not going to be the last thing you ever design. You don't have to put every single design dream into one project. And so, yeah, making quicker, more efficient decisions to get through that one and then see what you learn from that and then take those to the next. So on the overarching topic of finding work, I think what's unique to our practice is that we realized we needed to build the portfolio as part of finding work, which is what led us down that competition route. I think if you're fortunate enough where you have personal built projects already under your belt that you can use as part of your portfolio, then you probably don't have to go the competition route. If you're going the competition route, find competitions that you kind of have a good sense of how many people might be entering. So don't go after the ones that don't share that information. Go after ones that will provide a substantial reward or outcome, whether it's built or good prize money because that will help you get your business off the ground as well. Publications too. Publications. If you can get published, that's great. But yeah, I think as Lexi hit on earlier, competitions are ethically questionable and it's not something we want to promote as a means of getting work or or income because you're not going to pay the bills off competitions. You know, the hit rate is pretty low. You're competing against hundreds of other teams sometimes. And then the decisions are I don't know. Sometimes they feel arbitrary where we've had a few where we we felt great. And then you see what was selected by the judges and you're like, well, why weren't we selected? We Ours seemed better <laughs> without, without saying that. But I mean, it, there are so many good entries, I think is a point, you know, not just ours. And that at the end of the day, when you're competing against hundreds of people, the judges see a lot of the same things, a, a lot of really beautiful graphics and just have to make a call. So I don't think competitions necessarily pay off. We did that because we needed the portfolio and we learned a lot through doing it. But in terms of getting work, I, I think we thought, you know, we'd build our website and we'll get work, but it, it's 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 not. Getting work comes from putting yourself out there, meeting people, getting published, all those things. So that's what we've learned and that's the advice. And in season two, we'll cover more of that maybe. As we noted earlier in the episode, our experience on Lily Lane identified a number of workflow and process issues that we needed to work on. And we'll share our approach to selecting tools and developing our standard operating procedures next time on Emerging. Let's let's cross that bridge when we get there. I I I know, I'm just saying, have it in the back of your mind because Revit costs a lot of money. (laughs) Revit costs a ton of money. Thanks for listening. Emerging is a Gable Media podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps. And if you're looking for similar content, you can find even more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before we go, if you want to jump ahead and find out more about us and our practice, you can visit us at lvl.studio. From historic homes to modern architecture, brick is one of the most popular building materials around the world. 
how to allow the house to bridge the gap between the history of the site, the approachability of this kind of architecture in this kind of neighborhood, and the sort of nostalgia of materiality for, for the client's past, right? And, and Brick really started to provide an answer for that. Hi, I'm Doug Pat, and this is Design Vault. There aren't many materials that easily blend with any style and context, but Brick does just that. I've seen some extraordinary work with Brick, so when Glenn Gary approached me about hosting this podcast, I couldn't say no. Typically, Tudor-style houses from outside are just stunningly gorgeous piece of structure. And when you go in, it's just sad, yeah, dark. And that is not going to happen with my approach to design. I speak with industry leaders and share inspiring stories behind their work and ingenious design. You'll see brick that's fashioned into basket weave patterns, sawtooth patterns, what's known in England as diapering. Doesn't sound like you knew them per se, right? They found you through relationships that you had with other. Well, wait, Doug, there's more. Okay. <laughs> we'll go behind the scenes to understand process and even the inspiration that sparked the design. You know, I think we were inspired by all the factory buildings in, in Dumbo. I mean, that is the kind of period of significance, that early American factory building. Design Vault by Glenn Gary. Visit glengarry.com forward slash design dash vault or search for Design Vault wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now to stretch your imagination.